Hey, hey, water coolings. Welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Today on the podcast, we are joined by Maria Allen, founder of Changing Attitudes. Changing Attitudes exists to eliminate all attitudes leading to sex buying through education in schools, events, and media. In the episode, we have a chance to talk about uh, just COVID's impact on the sex work industry because of how regulations are changing, the landscape of being clean and healthy, those regulations could also be putting those involved in sex work in more vulnerable positions. And then we discuss the rise of deepfake technology. This is an issue we briefly touched upon in our male vulnerability with Adam Hoskin episode, but Maria and I take that next few steps into that conversation to talk about the technology's impact on relationships and how the reality of porn addiction could be changed for the the worse. Uh, as far as our conversation, this was, you know, hands down, a conversation that you'll definitely be able to revisit at the end of the year in our best of 2020 episode. I know. I hear it. I know I say every episode I love the conversation, but it's true. These are these are like my children. I can't, you know, it's hard to choose just one. But as we continue to raise the bar on this podcast, the bar for better conversations continues to be raised as well. Now more than ever, it is vital that we have better conversations. Conversations across platforms, news media, government, family, coworkers, peers, first dates, strangers that help us build a better today. You know, we are sitting in this very crucial time in history everywhere in the world. This is not just, I'm not speaking just directly to our US listeners here as the election comes up. I'm talking to everybody in the world that we're in a very crucial time and our moment to change the world starts with better conversations. We need to do better. We need to create free thinking and engaging platforms that allow others to feel comfortable having these untraditional conversations that do challenge us to be better. We need to reteach the world to build with respect, open-heartedness, and just a sincere intent to connect, like actually connect with one another. You know, we, <laughs> we can do better. We can do better. I promise you we can do better and we will do better. But yeah, I mean, I guess I could go on for another 30 minutes, but you're probably more interested in my conversation with Maria. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 49 titled Deep Fake Education with Maria Ellen. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not. Because they're real. I'm excited to have you on because you have such a, a passion for your work. The The hard work you do is, is something amazing. Mm, thank you. I appreciate it. All right. Are you ready to jump into our first news story? I'm ready. This is from France 24, August 15th, 2020. Berlin brothels reopen after lockdown, but no sex allowed. After months of being shut down due to COVID-19 restrictions, Brothels throughout Germany are once again open, but sex workers could face fines of more than $6,000 US for once legal acts. Germany, in addition to 79 other countries that legally or partially support prostitution, is among one of the top locations in Europe where an individual can partake in the business of sex tourism. In Germany, 40,000 plus registered sex workers receive employment contracts and social security benefits. But because of COVID, clients looking for sexual healing in the German capital of Berlin will instead have to make do with erotic massage until regulations are further relaxed. Yana49, a longtime registered sex worker, says she is looking forward to offering full service again sometime in the future, but isn't fearful of catching COVID-19 from one of her clients. She says, 
I prefer the sexual servants, my clients do too, but when you've been doing the job for 20 years and you have your regulars, you can choose who you take. If you don't like them, you send them back through the door. I'm not afraid at all. I'm just happy. Finally. But for those not registered in Germany, many of whom come from Romania, Bulgaria, and other parts of Eastern Europe, the new regulations on brothels have made them vulnerable with many having either gone underground, returned home, or forced to stay with less than ideal clients. Island Prophet, who works at a community center for sex workers in Hamburg states, if they, sex workers, work now, they work in worse conditions because they can't do it officially. They can't call the police afterwards if something bad happens to them. So Marina, I know in Sweden, where your organization Changing Attitudes is located out of, is a bit north of Germany, but what is the general view of sex workers in your part of the world? I know Sweden has, you're going to have to correct me on the pronunciation on this, but they have Queenofried, the Queenofried law? Oh, the Queenofrieds uh, lagen, yes. Yeah, that was that was good. At least I got you. <laughs> <laughs> At least you somewhat understood. Yes. So, yeah, okay, so I would say, like, the main difference comparing um, Sweden to Germany would be, I mean, there are a lot of differences, but, like, the, the overall difference would be just, like, the, how we view prostitution and especially how we view mm -hmm. uh, sex buying. And in Sweden, there is a law called, I mean, it has a couple of different names, but most people would know it as the Nordic model or the Sex Buyers Law or the Sex Buyers Act. And I think it's important to really like highlight that it is in fact a model. Like it's not only a law. Um, and just to kind of explain the law, it basically says that it's not, uh, you're not a criminal if you're selling sex, but you are a criminal if you're buying sex. So that is illegal. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and the whole point of that, because the first time I heard that, I was like, what is this law? Like, you know, it sounds strange. Uh, but the whole idea is really to like place uh, the burden upon the people, you know, who also have the power, you know, the sex buyer and not to place even more burden upon people who are perhaps already in a more, you know, difficult situation uh, being in prostitution. So Sweden has a different approach. And as I said, it's a model. So it's not only a law. It really is a model also, you know, offering support to people who wish to basically stop paying for sex. And it's also uh, supporting people within prostitution who perhaps then wish to leave prostitution or at least need some kind of support to kind of, yeah, survive. But I mean, you have those support systems as well, somewhat within Germany as well. But the difference still is that in Germany, you kind of, you accept the fact that people are in prostitution. You just kind of want them mm -hmm. to be safe within it uh, to some extent. And then perhaps the goal in Sweden would be for people not to even have to be in prostitution. You know, you want to offer other possibilities. Well, what, what is like the general view, like your personal beliefs on sex work? Because I'm someone, I'm very supportive of sex work workers and what they do. Obviously, with that comes the caveat of, you know, situations with human trafficking, sex trafficking, being forced into doing prostitution. I think the the women and men who decide to go into sex work that want to do it because they like doing it, I very much in support of them. Mm. But obviously, we have, you know, like I mentioned, those other situations with sex trafficking, human trafficking, which is on par of one of the biggest criminal acts in human history. Yeah. Like I've had this conversation a few times with friends and family. When you say you support sex work, people think, oh, you're in for prostitution and you're in for, you know, sex work and or sex trafficking. Sorry. And it's not that it's, you know, I, I think there's a possibility to support people like Yana in the story who enjoys doing that work, but also be against the bad practices in that industry. Yeah, it's important to keep, you know, many thoughts you know, to be able to kind of juggle many thoughts at the same time, you know, you can be critical of the industry and you can be critical of 
who is actually, you know, holding the power and who is making the money and the pimping and the trafficking. But you can also keep and maintain your support for the people within prostitution. And I find that to be key and to be crucial. And that has always been a part of my work because, you know, I run Changing Attitudes, which is a youth organization. So we really like educate on this issue to make sure that people, especially young people, are able to make informed decisions. What I've also done for years is that I've done outreach work, uh, meeting people in uh, especially street prostitution in many different countries uh, especially within Europe to have, you know, to have those stories and to really have those meetings. Let's say I've met, let's keep it low. Let's say I've met, uh, 300 people in prostitution. Mm-hmm. There is probably more people, but let's say I've met 300 people in prostitution to really make sure that when I'm meeting young people talking about these issues, it's very important for me to have those stories as well, you know, and to really have those meetings and to, I guess, carry those meetings within my heart, really, and to maintain, just as you're saying, to maintain your support of people, whether they want to be in prostitution or not, you know, that's not really, that does not uh, condition my support. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I'm yes, still yes. going to offer full support and full uh, respect and love and all of that to to people within every field, I guess, you know, so and with changing attitudes, our focus isn't really on people in prostitution. Our focus really is on young people and to get the facts and the the education out there and to really, you know, have a conversation about sex buying and have a conversation around porn and all that stuff so that young people are able to, yeah, like I said, make an informed uh, decision. I mean, we're called changing attitudes. So obviously we're going to talk about young people's attitudes towards people in prostitution as well, just as you're saying, you know, not to be disrespectful or to you know the word slut or the word whore like i would never accept that you know what i mean like Mm -hmm. that's not the way to go about it yeah i mean one of the key things we peddle here is education and the key of education and how you know having better communication with others creates a better world and i think that's you know one of the important things when we talk about the younger generation and as you say changing the attitudes of that younger generation is making i mean prostitution is it's one of the oldest professions in the world it's been around since humans existed it's going to be around for years and years and years after we or i guess it won't be around after we're all gone but it'll be here long into the future and i think we need to start talking to the younger generations and talk about this is this is a part of humanity this is you know it sounds it sounds horrible to say people selling themselves for sex but i mean sex is a natural part of the human condition And it needs to be less stigmatized that we can have conversations with the younger generations and kind of say, hey, prostitution happens. If you're looking to potentially buy sex, there's ways you can do it safe and respectful to somebody who is selling sex. And also, here's how to avoid potentially going into situations where that person's there because of the sex trade, human trafficking, sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. Let me be, let me be uh, the devil's attorney here. If you were a sex buyer, I'm just going to ask you this. It's just going to be interesting to, to know, because I've been thinking about this as well. So let's say you're a sex buyer and you want to visit someone in prostitution and you want to buy sex from them. How are you going to know whether that person is doing it out of free will or not? I think you just have to, you know, find a place that has brothels, go to countries that have legalized and regulated prostitution. I mean, 
obviously it's not going to be a perfect science. It's like buying drugs, especially here in the US as we've come to legalize marijuana. There's still situations where you're potentially buying marijuana that comes from a cartel run marijuana organization. So, you know, it's, it's not a perfect science, but I think going to countries where it's regulated, where, you know, sex workers are getting employment contracts and getting social security benefits. I mean, that consumer trust is something that I think is important, but it is, it's not a perfect science. You, you never know. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's the risk that I think a lot of people need to be aware of. Just the fact that you, you never know. Let's, yeah, let's use the factor brothels. Like brothels is, and has not proven to be a factor that actually protects people. There are a lot of stuff happening within brothels as well. Mm -hmm. And I think for it, for it to be like, to be a fruitful conversation and for it to be like realistic, I think it's important to, on all sides of the discussion to really like acknowledge that uh, there is not a perfect world in Sweden. Like I'm, I'm Norwegian, so I can be critical of Sweden. That's <laughs> kind of the benefits. But so I can really see like, obviously nothing is working perfectly here in Sweden. Yes. Of course not. And I would be a liar if I said otherwise. But I'm also not going to buy into statements saying that everything is fully functional in a brothel as well. You know what I mean? Because mm -hmm. I've met too many people within, especially actually in Austria, uh, in Vienna. I met a lot of people in prostitution there. I mean, the stories, my God, where do I begin? I mean, it's just... And that's the thing too. It's a lot of like the stories I've heard from Sweden, from people in prostitution in Sweden or in uh, Norway or in, um, you know, Austria or Germany really are similar. It's a lot of stories, uh, including abuse, sexual abuse in childhood. It's a lot of stories containing homelessness, mental illness, growing up in poverty, uh, witnessing violence within the home while growing up. And one of my major um, meetings I had with a young girl in Vienna, in Austria, it was like I was in a scene, like in a movie. Honestly, yeah, because mm -hmm. it was just like we were standing in the street. Uh, she was, I think, 18 or something, very young. And she was originally from Czech and being prostituted in, in Vienna. And it was raining. And she was just like, she was actually shaking and she had so little clothes on. And she would just like hold my hand and just look me in the eye. And she would just not, not let go of me. So, you know, she just stood there. And her pimp would actually circle around us and whisper what I understood to be threats in her ear, mm -hmm. telling her basically to, you know, wrap it up, wrap it up, you know, continue working. So it's, it's stories like that. And I, you know, I had to let her go, you know, I had to, to continue walking and meeting the other people. So it's just like, it's stuff like that and it's stories like that and people like that, that I think it's important to include when we're talking about this, you know, cause it's so you and yes. I, you know, we're so privileged, you know, we can sit here and have a podcast discussion on this, but none of us probably will ever, you know, would ever have to face it really. So I think that's important to, to remember. I mean, you make a very excellent point, you know, those stories are tough, even, you know, in the research up to this podcast, you know, I've worked, you know, with helping with sex trafficking before in the past, just those stories just make you want to just say, like, even like, I was so reading through the story, I was like, man, I'm so passionate. I had to like, write down some of my thoughts. So I didn't go too far off base. Yeah. But it, it, it's, it's a tough, it's a very, very tough situation with real humans involved. Yeah. You know, like you said, you know, we have the privilege of talking about this, but we're not in a case where we have to sell ourselves 
themselves to afford rent or to afford food or to give some care to maybe a child, a brother, a sister, your parents. You know, I very much appreciate you having you on. It's tough to have those conversations on how do we support, you know, sex workers? You know, that question I sent you, how do we support sex workers while creating healthier habits for sex buyers, while creating a safer industry? Because I just don't see this industry going away. I don't see prostitution just disappearing tomorrow. And it's how do we create a better industry? So if people want to be a part of that industry, they feel that they're safe. They feel that they don't have to be threatened to go to work. There was a study by like UCLA, Baylor did it. And then also the Research Institute in the Netherlands that basically said in areas where prostitution was legalized, that rape, sexual abuse and drug crime rates actually dropped. And so now you're creating potentially safer areas. But then you go back to like how many people are going to get negatively affected in until positive change happens. And it's just, it's just, I mean, I thank God I'm not a lawmaker because I don't think I can make those tough decisions. But I think having conversations about the possibilities is very important. For sure. And I think it's important as well, like what you're raising now, like it's important to see what kind of clientele, if you may, actually Mm -hmm. approach people in prostitution. Who are the people that they have to deal with? So when we're looking at statistics saying that, you know, if you legalize prostitution or sex buying, uh, rape is going to decrease. But then it's also important to see, well, did the people potentially, you know, that were kind of open to raping someone, did they instead go to someone in prostitution? You know what I mean? Like, who are we? Well, yeah, I think I think it's important if you don't mind me adding in. It's like when things are legalized, people are less likely to report a crime. Yes. And it looks better because it's legal. You know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. the statistics kind of go away, you know? So we could make rape legal and we could say we don't have any rape cases. You know, we (laughs) have totally Mm -hmm. abolished rape. So Mm -hmm. it's, um, yeah, statistics are are interesting. You know, you mentioned sex buyers. What are the type of people that are buying sex? You know, I know on your website, you have a lot of good statistics on who that person actually is. So it's, I would say like on the outside, it's anyone. Um, You can't really say much about like the, uh, the income or the social background or, you know, stuff like that. It could be basically anyone from, you know, any occupation making X amount of money, and all of that. However, there are some kind of groups that, you know, different studies have been able to kind of locate um, and where the main group sort of has been a basically a family guy, you know, like he mm-hmm. has he's, he's mostly a he and he has a partner. Um, he actually has had more, according to a study, has more uh, sex partners than someone who does not buy sex. So, you know, the myth about like, oh, you know, people, pay, you know, buy sex because they can't get it otherwise. Well, yeah. it actually doesn't look like that's the case. Uh, but it basically is, you know, somewhat of a family guy having a partner, sometimes, you know, having kids, you know, spicing up their everyday life with paying for sex. Then there are other studies as well looking into factors such as potential crime you know, history. And um, some studies even say that people who pay for sex tend to also be more sexually aggressive, tend to be to be basically saying themselves that, you know, rape is a possibility in my Mm -hmm. life. You know what I mean? It's not teddy bears 
all the time that people <laughs> in prostitution have to deal with. Let me just say that. Yeah. Well, I imagine. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I imagine if someone is buying sex, they view that person, whether it be man, female, transgender, as a product rather than a human. So it's much easier to dehumanize that person and be more aggressive. I think you're onto something for sure. Yeah, but like again, if I'm gonna like contradict myself, I do. I've heard a lot of stories from people in prostitution saying that. Oh, but, you know, most of my, you know, the, the people paying me for sex are nice, you know, they, they aren't harming me, they aren't being physical in a way that I have not allowed and, you know, stuff like that. Uh, but then again, if I'm gonna contradict that as well, I've heard <laughs> some horror stories as well. I remember this one girl a couple of years ago, she, um, her sex buyer wanted to see blood basically because that's what turned him on. He actually, he knocked her nose um, he punched her in the nose and then mm-hmm. the bone almost reached her brain. So she had to spend yeah. month in hospital and basically almost lost her life because he really wanted to see, to see blood. So, I mean, there are those stories as well. You know, as I mentioned in the story that had that Yana, who obviously she's in the position where she gets to choose who she wants. And, but I would say, I mean, these are not statistics that I know on hand, but like, I would say 90% of prostitution is not that case where they can't just pick and choose who their clients are. And, you know, a lot of them, as you know, I mentioned, a lot of them may be facing monetary issues where it's, well, I guess, I have to choose this person because I need to eat this week. In another story, there was um, a transgender woman who said before COVID, when things weren't as shut down, you know, I could have more protection on who I chose. But now I have to I have to kind of go underground and do more out there things because I just need to survive. And it's, you know, every for every one Yana you hear who can pick and choose, there's 10 other people who can't and they have to kind of go underground, go into the seedy areas of a town where it's not as safe and they just don't know. They don't have that protection. You're so right. And again, like, you know, juggling the different thoughts, like we can accept her story, you know what I mean? And say that that is true. But then we also can include the nine out of 10, as you're saying, who is just like in this survival state. I, and I think like we've been kind of saying, it's it's a tough conversation to how do we support sex workers? How do we create a safe industry that is going to exist while also, you know, changing those attitudes and allowing for a better, more productive step forward in laws and regulations and especially coming out of COVID-19. I mean, we'll probably be in there for another 100 years, at least in the US here. But how do we create just a better industry for these women, these men to really feel like they can do something that they want to do instead of being forced into doing it or instead of having to do it because, well, I know I can make a quick buck doing this. Right. And then I think it's important to actually ask people within the industry, like, what do you need? What do you want? What can we do for you, basically? And so there are so many good, I would say, support organizations out there and support systems, especially like, you know, um, more like pro bono based organizations and stuff who, who really do that work and who really, you know, um, I, I've been to, uh, you know, Amsterdam, uh, the Netherlands and really seen the, the brothels there, the red light district. And this guy actually, he works, uh, he offers support basically to people, uh, within the sex industry in, in, in Amsterdam. And so he took me on, on a, you know, we actually went for a whole night and visited different, um, windows 
and, and spoke to a lot of different people. Just kind of that work, I think, is so important. And I really like, you know, applaud and just like, wow, you know, for the people who, who do that yeah. work. Yeah, that is just amazing. And to, to, I guess, yeah, like I said, like ask the people within the industry, what do you need? Uh, include people in the conversation because that I'm actually so sick of, you know, like all this good organizations talking about this. But then when you ask them deeper, you know, have you met someone in prostitution? Have you met someone paying for sex? And the answer is often no. So I think that is really key as well to to have the profession be really rooted in in the real um, situation that people are in. Just recently in Berlin, a bunch of sex workers were, you know, protesting outside of I don't know how laws or where laws are made in Europe, but outside of a lawmaker's place. Mm -hmm. And I think those are the stories that need to be front page. Well, these are the people that are actually dealing with the situation and maybe we should be listening to them. Right. We have we have some experience talking to those people and, you know, doing the research, but actually living it is a completely different conversation. For sure. And that is also why I really appreciate a lot of uh, the research that has been done. And you can find a lot of it, especially on uh, prostitutionresearch.com. There's a lot of studies there published. Uh, you know, one of the major studies actually show that 89% of people within prostitution, and that's comparing nine countries, 900 people from nine countries said that I want to leave prostitution. So, but that still leaves 11% who says, I want to stay. And so then who am I to judge that? You know what I mean? So then I have to mm -hmm. be fully supportive, obviously. But it's also then important not to forget those 89%. You know, that's nine out of 10 saying, I actually don't want to be in this situation. And, you know, speaking of Germany, the, the numbers are so uncertain. So I'm not going to mention it, but there are a lot of people in prostitution in Germany. But then there is also the last number I read a couple of years ago was that only 44 people had registered in Germany. Let's say you got a half a million people in prostitution in Germany and then you got 44 not 44,000, but 44 people registering. And that also, I think, says something about, you know, is this something that people want to be in? You know what I mean? Like most people. Mm -hmm. But again, respecting those who do, but also protecting those who, who does not. And I think also, you know, offering uh, an exit route, really, to have, a, you know, have an alternative, which is difficult because, I mean, you have so much. And I mean, looking at what's happening, obviously, globally now, the unemployment situation, I mean, it's not going to improve, I think. So we really got a tough situation, obviously, on our hands. It's not like we have, you know, half a million jobs that we can just offer to people. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's not a handout. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... Obviously, yeah. you're going to have people in prostitution. A lot of the people I, you know, that I met has been doing uh, this for, let's say, 10 or 15, even 20 years. And then going, applying for, for another job, showing that resume, you know, it's going to have a huge, uh, it's just going to be a huge gap there to many employers. You know, they're not going to view being in prostitution perhaps as a job or, you know, because what you mentioned earlier, you know, the stigma and all that. So coming into a more, let's say, a more classic quotation mark work environment is going to be a challenge mm -hmm. as well. So not everybody is just going to be open arms, unfortunately. There's a lot of judgment as well. Well, yeah, you have that stereotype of, oh, if you need to make a quick buck, sell your body or go into stripping. Yeah. Those are actual professions where people can make a lot of good money if they want to be there. It's 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 about changing that stigma. So, you know, if someone was once a sex worker and now wants to go work at some place, they don't feel ostracized from society because of their 
past. I totally agree. And that to me has nothing to do. Like you can, you can think whatever you want about prostitution, you know, you can be totally, you know, on this or the other side and, you know, but I think we can all agree. We need to have an open arm ready for whoever wants to go into another area. It doesn't really matter what you personally then think of prostitution, I think, because it's more important that the society accepts whatever past we may have because if not that is also gonna just that is i think gonna keep people in prostitution who perhaps don't want to be there it's just gonna keep them there for a longer period of time instead of as i said you know offering open arms no i think those are excellent final words on that story i would like to welcome to the show public speaker author and founder of changing attitudes maria allen changing attitudes based in sweden exists to eliminate all attitudes leading to sex buying through education in schools events and media such as podcasts like water cooler talk and many other outlets maria welcome to water cooler talk thank you as part of water cooler talk supporting the communities that support us we obviously have a consistent and awesome base in sweden from the very beginning of the show um, so I'm glad to be able to bring you on the podcast to talk more about the type of work you're doing with Changing Attitudes and how that work has been a positive addition to the community. Obviously, as I mentioned, you know, education being the key of what I've been peddling for almost a decade now. I know you've been doing it for more than a decade. Uh, we need to hold, We need to hang out with some people who are much older than us to make us feel young again. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to ask, how old are you or how young are you? I, I am 25. Okay. So I've been doing this type of work for seven, eight years. Okay, that is so cool. And I know Changing Attitudes started in 2008. Yes, you're right. Wow. You've done your homework. I've done I've done my research. I have a lot of pages of research here. Cool. Uh, but anyways, what needs to change in the education of porn and sex buying to start making bigger, impactful strides for better attitudes towards sex in future generations? What a question. Okay. The first thing that actually just needs to happen is that we start talking about this. Because for too long, and especially this concerns the porn issue, because for too long it's just been dead silent. Mm -hmm. People just haven't been talking about it, but yet we are consuming it. So the gap there is just too too huge. And so I really think it's important to include these conversations within the schools to really look at, you know, the sex education and to make sure because the situation today is really that the porn industry gets to kind of, you know, hold the title as the sex educator. And then obviously this sex educator, quotation mark, is only in it for the money, really, not really in it for, <laughs> you know, for you and I to have good sex education. You know, that's not what porn is about, really. So I think like not leaving um, that kind of power to the industry, but really like regaining the power and making sure that young people get their sex education and not just the condom on the banana really get a good, <laughs> not one, but a lot of conversations uh, included in, in schools. I think that is very important. And I think that's a good starting point, really. When we talk about porn education, it is horrendous, or sex education, it is horrendous here in the United States. But I think when it comes to talking to porn and porn education, I think that you also need to include kind of online education. Yeah. I think regardless of how hard parents may try, Kids are going to find a way to find something on the internet. I mean, I remember in school finding a handful of different ways to go around blockers to watch YouTube videos or play online games. And every generation just gets more and more tech savvy. So I think along with, you know, teaching people or teaching the younger generation about porn and porn addiction and porn habits, teaching them online habits. Like you kind of mentioned, I don't necessarily think mainstream porn is educational in nature. In nature. It's uh, a lot more predatory and monetary based. 
biased, but I, I do believe there is good porn being made that can be beneficial, that can be educational. By teaching kids, you know, what's acceptable, what's consensual, what's respectful in a sexual relationship, and at the same time teaching them how to use the internet as a productive source of learning, I could easily drastically see porn habits changing by just combining those two things. Right. I hear you. And yeah, that's that's utopia. You know what I mean? And that's that's awesome. <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah. But then, you know, looking at like who is actually stumbling upon this are kids. Mm-hmm. Let's say they're about 12 years old the first time they stumble upon it. And the thing is that I think like if you have a 12 year old who has an erection, who is just looking for porn, you know, it's going to be a challenge to make that kid spend a lot of time looking for more, let's say, consensual porn. So that's a challenge. Uh, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's a challenge. And I think also we need to realize that the today's, you know, today's mainstream porn really is dominating the field today in terms of what's being offered to us. Obviously, there are some, um, you could say more just producers, but there are so many shady ones and there are so many, I guess, pimping style ones. And that's what's being available to us. That is what's being offered. That is what you'll find Googling porn today. You know, that's what's going to pop up. And so, yeah, to kind of like realize that Let's take Pornhub as an example. Like their goal, as I said, is not to offer you and I good sex education. Mm -hmm. At least up until now, that has not been their goal. So to really be clear on who is offering porn to us and what their purpose is, I think is important. And I also think just teaching the younger generation, heck, just everyone, how to have better relationships, how to have not just good communication, but absolutely fucking fantastic communication yeah. is such a pivotal part of one part of changing the habits in this. Because, you know, if you're if you're in a relationship or you're thinking about being in a relationship with someone, you're thinking about having sex, you've had sex, having a conversation about sex with that person shouldn't be awkward. Right. Where porn can be beneficial. Overall, I think, you know, porn definitely needs to change. But where it can be beneficial within a relationship? Because I know there are a lot of issues when it comes to porn in a relationship. Mm. But when you're having a conversation with a, a potential partner or a already existing partner, being able to talk about this is what turns me on and this is what turns me off. And I can show examples of each of those to kind of get a clear image. So when we do have sex, we know exactly what I like, exactly what I don't. Obviously, with that, both sides have to have a mutual agreement. But when you get into how porn is being used in not relationships with not great communication, for example, the guy who watches so much porn that he has this fantasy idea of what sex is. So when he does have sex, he can't finish or he can't get hard because, well, he's picturing this, you know, blonde with big boobs and and his girlfriend or person he's hooking up with doesn't match that. I mean, this is one of the things I also peddle on this show is just better communication in relationships. So we don't have to you know, go to Pornhub to find something that fills our needs. Instead, we're actually communicating with a partner on how to fill those needs. I could not have said that better myself. I fully agree, fully. And I think that's the cure, if you may, for, um, let's say, porn addiction. One of the cures is exactly what you're saying. It's communication. And it's also, I think, uh, because if you're single using porn, I think it's important to ask yourself, why am I using porn? You know, like what what kind of void is this feeling? If, if that is in fact the case with you. So to be honest to yourself about your own feelings and to really 
I think because the stories that I've heard, uh, not all of them, but a lot of them has been about using porn as escape, you know, as an escape route uh, from something yeah. else that is, dif- you know, difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like ex- escaping and kind of fleeing into porn. I mean, it's going to it's going to feel good for for a couple of seconds, but then it's not, you know, because <laughs> literally yes. a couple of seconds. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. But then it's not, you know, because your problems or your your, you know, anxiety or whatever you're kind of fleeing from is still there. So so the communication with yourself as well, in a way, I think it's important. Yeah. You know, one of the things, you know, doing research on changing attitudes and kind of what you guys are doing and talking to the younger younger generation I think it's so important when it comes to sex education because, I mean, as I mentioned, sex education here in the U.S. is absolutely horrendous. Mm-hmm. I mean, as most things in the U.S., it's politicized. You know, we have, I think it's like a little more than 60% of America practices some form of Christianity. Not only do we have politics involved, we have religion involved. If over half of the country thinks sex before marriage is a sin and, you know, you have absolute guilt and shame, you're not going to be able to have good conversations about sex. I mean, you're kind of stopping it before it has already begun. Like it's not Mm -hmm. even given a chance, really. And I mean, it's it's difficult because you do see people, I mean, are coming from a good place, you know? But I think, you know, many times people think perhaps they're coming from a good place, but actually when you kind of identify that for yourself, you're actually coming from a place of fear. You know, you don't want your kid or whatever to have a bad experience. So then you're like, ah, keep your hands above your sheet kind of, you know? So it's, yes. I don't think that's going to get us anywhere. I think uh, what is going to get us somewhere is to have an open dialogue and just kind of, I mean, if you're a parent, like put your poker face on. I've used mine a couple of times, let me tell you. And so to just like be open to whatever is going to be shared with you, I think is important. And to perhaps not go into a conversation saying this is right and this is wrong, but like go into it with, as I said, an open mindset so that the kid or the youth or whoever you're talking with can share with you, you know, whatever is on their mind and then go from there, I think. Um, Because it's a difficult subject and it's a sensitive one as well, because porn i mean it relates to masturbation you know it relates to sex it relates to intimacy and all that so to many it's going to be personal and it's going to be a sensitive topic i think what you could do if you want to kind of be open to that conversation um and inspire an open conversation is to not starting everything off by saying what is wrong and what is right yeah i think that i think that's an important thing to not try to be, be still be protective but not be overprotective to the point where I don't. I don't know if it. You had the same kind of. Um, what do, What do I call them? Like folklore legends in Sweden. I don't. I don't think that's the right thing. But like, if you masturbate, you're going to go blind, or you're going to get hairy palms, yes. or stuff like that. Is not. It's not the uh, the most productive way. <laughs> I would not recommend that. <laughs> no. Uh, listeners, if you'd like to support Maria and the work her and her team are doing, you can do so by heading to their website www.changingattitudes.co. Once again, www.changingattitudes.co. You can also follow them on Instagram at changingattitudes, or you can follow Marie herself at Alan Maria, Alan spelled A-H-L-I-N. Once again, on Instagram at Alan Maria. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. You're such a good interviewer, I have to say. (laughs) Thank you. I've been doing it for seven years, so hopefully, hopefully I've gotten good by it. Yes. I can assure you, you have. All right, Maria, are you ready to jump into our final news story of the episode? Let's do it. This is from Forbes editor Pick. What can you do if somebody steals your face to make a pornographic video? Unfortunately, the answer, 
isn't as obvious as it seems. Since machine learning started being widely used to create deepfakes, synthetic media in which a person in an existing image or video is replaced with someone else's likeness, the technology has been overwhelmingly applied to create pornographic videos of men, sorry, of women without their consent. 99% of deepfake porn exclusively targets female actresses, musicians, or athletes. Despite the technological progress in tracking deepfakes, which includes Google and Microsoft taking a lead in image detection, the reality is that the vast majority of users are simply looking for a certain level of realism to a favorite celebrity, even though they know for sure the video is fake. Scarlett Johansson, a popular target, has given up on trying to prevent misuse of her image. She says, I think it's a useless pursuit, legally, mostly because the internet is a vast wormhole of darkness that eats itself. Even if you copyright pictures with your image that belong to you, the same copyright laws don't apply overseas. I have sadly been down this road many, many times. The fact is that trying to protect yourself from the internet and its depravity is basically a lost cause for the most part. An entire deepfake industry is now developed. About a thousand such videos are uploaded to some of the top porn sites every month, with some garnering upwards of tens of millions of views. To complicate matters further, we have an extremely confusing legislation which, in many countries, grants the right to an image of some people not to them, but to the creator of the image, as in the case in many situations among photographs by paparazzi of public figures. While some politicians worry about the misuse of deepfake videos in election campaigns or before important legislation votes, reality has moved on and now anyone can take control of someone's image to create a video in which they appear to be doing whatever the creator may want them to do, and the affected party is all but powerless to try and do anything to stop them. In an untenable situation, how do we regain consent over the use of our own face? We've we've covered deepfakes before, and it, it's one of those things that just it gets me so angry that this is an industry that exists that people are so people are so depraved that they need to create something that doesn't exist to get off or to feel like they're in control so i do want to ask you this question you know why do you believe generally men i would say mostly men over sexualize women to the point of using technology to literally create images and videos of them in non-consexual sexual situations? I would actually say that nothing has really changed in a way. I would say it's the same kind of sexualization that has been going on. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it's 2020 now. We've got other possibilities, technologically speaking. And so I think we're going to use whatever we have available to us to basically just continue doing what has been done for centuries. I mean, in 10 years, it's going to be something else. But to the core of it, it is a problem with, as you're saying, like it's, it's a mistreatment of, of women. And it really has to do with a lot of things, I think, you know, attitudes uh, in, in society in general that are sexist and unequal. And I mean, we still doesn't, you know, we still don't have equal pay, you know, today. And it's, it's 2020. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it really shows up in different areas, I think, um, within the society. But, but to the core, I think it's a matter of, of attitudes, uh, that needs to be changed. And which is why I think it's still, you know, important to talk about porn and to really acknowledge the fact that we have all this research saying that porn can, in fact, produce these kinds of attitudes, make us categorize women into, you know, the Madonna, Madonna whore complex, if you've heard of that, you know, like, oh, she's yes. my mm -hmm. sister, nobody can touch her, she's kind of holy and pure. But then there is this person in, let's say, prostitution, you know, she's a whore, and I can do whatever I want with her, you know, that separation. It's the same kind of attitudes 
being expressed in different ways. No, I think I mean you nailed the you nailed the head or you nailed the nail on the head. You nailed the nail on the head. Something I, I I know I've used that phrase before and I still don't have it right. But anyways, it is. It's men have been over sexualizing women's for forever, and the medium's just gotten better. You know, I was reading about how Playboy when they first started, they had this column Beaver Hunt. Men would send in photos of women, naked women, to put them on this Beaver Hunt section of Playboy to show off these naked women and as you know prizes basically wow. and i don't know as far as like why men tend to over sexualize women i don't know if it's biological i don't know if it's just you know remnants of the horrible idea of what it means to be a man and how men fit into society from yesteryear but from my experiences men tend to need to feel in control hmm. i think that's why you know there's the stereotype of as a man, you're never supposed to ask for directions when you're lost because right. you don't want a stranger to think you're not in control of your own situation. And it, 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 it's it's utter bullshit. I think it's so stupid, but it, it's just something that's ingrained in our minds. So when you take someone like Scarlett Johansson and her stature, and then you have this obsession of celebrity that we have across the world, and then you have someone who, you know, a man in this case, who's not in the public eye and, you know, he's just at home and he's like, well, you know, I'm never going to be Colin Jost. I'm never going to get Scarlett Johansson to be interested in me. I don't feel like I have control of that situation. So I'm going to either create something of my own to try to get some iota of control, or I'm going to pay someone to give me that control. And oh, now there's a video of Scarlett Johansson naked and doing something that, you know, she's not consenting to. And now I feel like I have some control over the situation, some control over my life that, oh, look, Scarlett Johansson, she's too good for me. Well, now I'm looking at her naked. It's, it's, I hate that this is ingrained in manhood that we need this iota of control, but it's there. Mm. And I even know, you know, like before this, we talked about, you know, being on other podcasts and it's like, it's tough for me to be on other podcasts because of the control of my image. Like I want my image to be this way or that way. And I just know I want to feel in control as a man of who I am. And it's just it's just one of those attitudes, you know, as we've been mentioning, that needs to change. It's not going to change today. It's not going to change tomorrow, but it needs to change. I think you just hit the nail on the head or <laughs> however that was supposed to be said. <laughs> however it's said. I'm not even going to look it up to correct no, it at this point. No, me neither. It's way more fun like this. <laughs> no, but wow. I think you, yeah, I think you're on to something. What we can, I guess, just only hope for in the future is for the norms and kind of the way we view, especially as you're saying, manhood and like, what is it to actually be strong? And what does it mean to, to show power? You know, like, is it the person who screams the loudest and who is the nastiest? You know, is that really the strongest person? And, you know, I would, I would argue otherwise, but I think it's, I think it's something that really needs to change, like when the, you know, within the root of our culture and in our identity, I guess, in terms of how we actually view strength and how we view power and how we view men. I think it's not only hurting women, these norms. I think a lot of men suffer too from always having to be this strong, independent, never having to ask for directions, you know, got it all figured out. Um, nothing bothers me. You know, I, I'm never upset. I'm never sad. I think that is going to be harmful to a man as well. Um, and I've done some 
uh, previous work, vol- voluntarily work only uh, within a prison here in Sweden and meeting sex offenders, males only, and uh, a high-risk prison. So, I mean, the stuff they've been doing, you know, is obviously awful. But to really see and to also talk with their psychologist, which they, you know, they will go into therapy with and to really see that a lot of the men uh, have been taught only perhaps either you are, uh, let's say you are happy or you are angry. Yes, you yes. know, in between there is missing or at least you're not, you haven't been taught how to express that or you haven't been allowed to express that even. A lot of the times you would see men being angry when in fact they were sad, you know, and in fact perhaps their mother had just died and they're in prison and they haven't seen her for a while and now she's dead and so... Instead of crying, they're punching. The expression of emotion, I think, is really important to start integrating into um, into the male identity as well. I think that's going to help all of us. No, that's really important. Like, you know, Water Cooler Talk and myself were on the forefront of that male vulnerability discussion and having a lot of discussion with men. And time and time again, you get, you ask them, you know, when's the last time you cried? And they say, why would I cry? Crying's gay. I'm like, what like what what kind of behavior is that you know what kind of that's not healthy behavior they've been taught they've been ingrained through society through you know older generations that oh yeah i can't cry you know i either like you said perfectly i either have to be happy or mad there's no in between and it just does not create a healthy outlook on life yeah. to the point where you're creating a a fake pornographic image of someone because you feel like you need to be in some way in control like the control the, the lack of control perhaps that you actually are experiencing yes. in other areas of your life perhaps then will will kind of manifest in what you're doing in this area yeah well i do i do i do want to ask you like how do you believe the ease of access to create deep fakes will change how people date hook up even break up heck even have friendships you know as this technology becomes easier and easier and easier to use its accessibility well, I mean, I don't want to say it, but it's kind of true. It creates a sense of fear in how you treat someone and how you treat a friend, a partner, an ex. You know, it's like, oh, if I broke that person's heart, are they going to just make a fake video of me? Right. And I mean, we already have that, uh, I would say, you know, what you're mentioning now in terms of... With revenge point. Yeah, exactly. You're right. Yes. So that is a fear, uh, unfortunately, that a lot of girls especially have when it comes to breaking up with their male partner, because, you know, it happens. Guys, not everybody, uh, you know, thankfully, but some guys do this when they're upset. And it's just, it's so, I mean, it's just, it's just beyond disrespectful, because it is so hurtful to people who have been exposed to this. The stories that you read for, you know, from people who have experiencing being, uh, you know, treated this way you know they're talking about uh discovering it only years later the you know the realization of you know this has been online for two three years and i didn't even know it how many people have seen this and oftentimes it's someone they know that actually stumbles upon it and then sends it to them so there's a lot of shame and a lot of guilt as well that people are talking about so it's not just a photo online it's, it's so much more it's so much more harm that's being done then i think even the the perpetrator realizes as well that was one of the biggest things that changed my porn viewing habits is hearing stories from even from friends where they're like 
oh, a video went up on Pornhub, got millions of hits. I didn't want that video. I didn't say I could, he could record that video. A lot of those videos, you don't know if both parties agreed to do it or if it was just one party, if it was revenge porn. I think Pornhub, obviously being one of the bigger um, porn sites, has the averse effects of, you know, you hear all the stories about revenge porn on Pornhub and how hard it is to get those videos off. Even child porn on Pornhub and how hard it is to get those videos off. I, I think if more people, you know, trying to go back to a kind of our first story a little bit, but if more people heard these stories from the actual people affected, I think porn habits would change because you'd be like, well, I'm not going to watch that video that looks like the camera's set up to be hidden. Oh, that girl probably didn't know about that camera. Right. You're so right. And I think that is hopeful as well, because then you're like, oh, so we can actually kind of fill this uh, gap with knowledge and with information. And then that is actually going to help. You know, that is actually going to make people you know, make more informed decisions, which you obviously have done as well. So that is so cool that that actually works, you know, like mm -hmm. if we can get the info out there, then that is gonna, that's gonna make it, I think for a lot of us, it's going to be more difficult to be with, you know, good consciousness, like be able to, to support this because you don't want to actually support something that's non-consensual. Most people wouldn't want that. So to get that out there, I think it's important. And I mean, it's being done now. You see a lot of stories in the media now, uh, just as you're saying, in terms of people experiencing having stuff uploaded on Pornhub, which then was not consensual. And now they're trying to get it removed. And Pornhub you know, refuses to do that. Mm -hmm. There was this story not long ago, um, which I, I don't know if it was new or just circulated then, but a girl, she, I think she tried for like six months to get Pornhub to get it off, uh, to take it off. And then, but not until she threatened with legal action. Yes. They mm -hmm. listened. Then it's not really a matter of, of her and her rights and her consent. It's more a matter of legal you know, just consequences and I guess money. So I think something that people kind of forget when having uh, these conversations and they're like, oh, she got taken down. Well, it's the internet. You can't really have anything taken down. Even if that video is up for a month, even if it's up for a day, it's still up there and people are still seeing that and people are seeing things that that person did not want the general public seeing. For sure. And then I think it's also important to remember that there are a lot of those stories within the, let's say, the classic porn industry as well, where you have people who have, you know, the same with what we were talking about earlier uh, in terms of people experiencing prostitution um, mm -hmm. In terms of having uh, experienced, uh, you know, sexual abuse and homelessness and all that, you're like you see those factors as well within the porn industry. Not everyone, but it, 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 you know, it exists. So I think it's important to also see that something perhaps that could have been expressed at the moment or in the moment as consensual, perhaps in, you know, in hindsight, wasn't. You know, that there are a lot of those stories as well. People saying, "I actually really regret what I did." 10 years ago, uh, and I wish I could have it taken down, but I can't. You know, I signed a contract. It's it's there. You know, you have Mia Khalifa fighting for her rights yes. right now. Mm -hmm. Consent is, is it's somewhat tricky when it comes to the situation that you could also be in. There perhaps sometimes are reasons for consenting to something that perhaps in a different situation, a more, an easier situation, you perhaps wouldn't consent to it. So you have a lot of people regretting, you know, that as well. We kind of talked about better 
communication and relationships. And consent is one of those huge ones. You know, we talked about it in our sex education with Sam. Even looking back at after that conversation, even looking back at my own sexual encounters, I was like, well, we both agreed to have sex and we both enjoyed ourselves. But was I completely consensual during that whole time? Did I do something, you know, that maybe she wasn't uncomfortable or she wasn't comfortable with? But in the moment, she's like, well, I'm already here. Consent is one of those words where it's easy to say, oh, she consented to it. But it's like, what did she really consent? to everything involved in that act. And was it easy to say no? Yes. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it, it can be tricky for sure. Now, with deepfakes, we have a situation where if a girl doesn't or someone just in general doesn't consent to some sexual situation, you can just go on the internet and take a photo of them and say, well, hey, I guess too bad. It's it's a very dangerous, dangerous, fucked up industry. I agree. I agree. And it's um, I was just I was thinking about this because I posted about deepfakes the other day and I was really like just putting myself to the extent that that is even possible, but putting myself in the shoes of someone who has been then that has been done to. And so I was just asking myself, how would I feel if someone did that? And I would just, I know I would just feel violated. You know, I would just (laughs) feel disrespected and I would just be, you know, what the heck? Like, this is my face. This is my, it's like, it feels, I think, like theft in a way. Yes. Uh, Not only abuse, but also like, yeah, like a like a really violation, really, of your integrity. I don't have control over my own image. Like, it looks like I'm doing something that I have never done, and it looks so real. And, and that is also, you know, the reason we're talking about this right now is because it really looks real. You know, it is actually quite advanced uh, in many cases. Yeah, I would I would feel violated for sure. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Maria, thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Once again, if you'd like to support Changing Attitudes and their mission to eliminate all attitudes leading to sex buying, head to their website, www.changingattitudes.co. Once again, for those in the back, www.changingattitudes.co. And as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. And as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast hosted on the internet by myself and guest hosted today by Maria, where we take these, I say this every episode and I always forget it, (laughs) where we take these strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. As I said at the beginning, Maria, this is my favorite portion of the show because I hand off my show to you and uh the floor is yours to close out the show however you seem fit wow thank you first i want to say thank you for having me it's been a blast it's actually been one of my favorite talks i'm going to be honest i appreciate that i'm going to remember that the rest of my life please do (laughs) (laughs) no but i really what i appreciate so much and what i really find to be key is the conversations and so for me i'm not afraid when people think different or perhaps don't agree to me i'm I'm more afraid when the conversation isn't really happening so that scares me to have an open debate or a conversation about something and then obviously not everyone is going to think the same i mean we're not the same so that would just Mm -hmm. be you know that wouldn't be real i would just like encourage everyone who listens really to just take the time and talk to your friends or your kids or your co-workers or your partner especially about porn and really like you know first perhaps grasp the fact that this is so available and so many kids are seeing this on a daily basis to kind of just realize that and then just go from there and have a 
have a realistic point of view when talking about it and yeah, be open-minded and put your poker face on. <laughs> no, I very much appreciate the conversation. I love these types of conversations. Like, as you said, I think it's important, you know, I, in that first story, we had slightly different views, but we still had a general understanding and respect towards one another. And I think that just makes better conversations. You know, these are hot topic issues that people feel uncomfortable talking about. And people are going to have varying degrees of how they view that situation. But it's important just, you know, to listen, to actually listen, to actually listen. Uh, don't just listen to respond, but actually listen to what people are saying and hear why they feel that way and hear why they think that way. And I think you're going to create better conversations and, you know, better, better podcasts. Word. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners, until next time. Peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. What an episode. What a guest. What a time. Thank you once again to Maria for calling into the studio from Sweden to talk about those bizarre news stories. As always, make sure to support her organization, Changing Attitudes, and their mission to eliminate all attitudes leading to sex buying by heading to their website, www.changingattitudes.co.co, not a.com. But... Anyways, to the corrections. In the first story discussing the reopening of brothels in Germany, laws in Germany are drafted by the federal government and then passed down to and made into law by the German Bundestag, which is their version of parliament, before it is signed into law by the federal president and made known to the people in the Federal Law Gazette. So the answer to my query about where laws are made in Germany, the Bundestag. And then Maria mentioned a few studies and numbers in regards to sex workers. If you want to read more about that information, connect with myself through our email, watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com, and I can pass along that information. Or you can connect directly with Maria through www.changingattitudes.co. And as we start to update episodes with show notes, those resources will be directly linked. But unfortunately, upon the release of this episode, October 6th, that is not the case, but I'm more than willing to share those sources with you. During the guest introduction portion of the episode, to add on to Maria's point about young children stumbling onto porn, according to Culture Reframed, 94% of children in the U.S. will have watched some form of pornographic content by the age of 14, with the average consensus age of a first-time porn viewer being just 11 years old. And then to add on to my point about Christianity in the U.S., about 65% of Americans believe in some form of Christianity. And finally, for the guest introduction portion, another masturbation myth. I don't know. I think I think I called it folklore. I guess it is kind of folklore if you're sharing these stories. But but anyways, have you heard eating cornflakes can stop you from masturbating and committing the worst sin unmanageable? Obviously, this is a phony myth. Uh, I want to make it very clear. It is not true. Uh, but it came about because the inventor of cornflakes, John Harvey Kellogg, developed many of the foods that have made Kellogg a billion-dollar company because he wanted to decrease interest in sex. He also wanted to make healthy food, but that was also one of the reasons was to decrease interest in sex. Uh, he thought sex was the ultimate abomination, and masturbation could lead to leprosy, tuberculosis, heart disease, epilepsy, blindness, insanity, and death. 
Uh, he also believed if you like spicy food, that meant that you masturbated too much. Uh, <laughs> the, the more you know, huh? That's a that's a fun fact to share around once we uh, can hang out again, huh? And then in the second story discussing the rise of deepfake technology, the Madonna whore complex, which is quite common actually in serial killers who target sex workers, as Maria mentioned, is the idea that you see women as either saintly, like the mother of Jesus, the Madonna, or you see them as whores, and they're you know not worthy of being an equal. This was, of course, as you could have probably already guessed, first categorized by Sigmund Freud because it is often believed that someone with this complex has an Oedipal-type relationship with their mother who was cold towards them as a child, but at the same time very, very overprotective. And then for the final correction of the episode, the woman who was able to get her video off of Pornhub after threatening legal action did so by actually pretending to be a lawyer and threatening legal action after Pornhub had avoided her previous pleas to have a video of her at 14 being raped taken down from the site. That's right, it took her pretending to be a lawyer to have that video taken down. The woman's name is Rose Kalemba. I highly recommend reading her story, the story she inspired, and ho hopefully those stories help you change how you view the type of content these large pornographic sites show and, you know, start holding them to a higher standard. They have the money to do so, but I think that's important to read those stories and hold these places to a higher standard. Ask them. As we say across the show, just be better. All right, Water Coolings, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Once again, thank you to Maria for calling into the studio and talking about some of the strangest and most weirdest news stories the world has to offer. But anyways, that's your Corrections. That's your episode. So get, get, this get, get, This is the story of, of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. <laughs>